Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. My name's Sarah. Thank you so much for listening today. How are you doing, Sarah? Doing all right. The weather's turned into uh, definitely that fall chill kind of weather. Which means that Halloween is coming. Yes, it's fall, uh, and we're going to start getting crinkly leaves and all kinds of spooky atmosphere. Decorative gourds. (laughs) Pumpkin spice everything. uh, (laughs) I love it. As we head towards Halloween, which is going to be our time, Sarah. Our time. Our time? Yeah. Before we get to our time... What is our present? What are we watching today? Oh, um, well, today we're watching a film called The Monster Walks from 1932. He doesn't run? No, he walks. He's safety inclined. Ah. Before we started doing this project, I had never heard of this movie. Okay. And knew nothing about it. So what I've been able to gather is that it was an indie film designed to cash in on the new craze for horror in America. So it was a cheap, independently produced B-movie. This isn't going to be the last time that cheap, (laughs) independently produced B-movie and the horror genre are going to, uh, you know, walk hand in hand. (laughs) Its plot inspiration is largely taken from the kind of spooky old house gothic mystery genre, exemplified by The Cat and the Canary. I guess the main distinguishing factor is this movie has a monster ape in it. Ape? Yes. That's not a monster, that's just an animal. Well, if it's on the loose and larger than average. (laughs) But I thought before we watched it, we could maybe, for any of our listeners who haven't heard our episodes about Cat and the Canary or other similar films, uh, just a little bit about kind of the genre that this movie is in. For sure. You like to call it the spooky old house genre. Yeah, I mean, because I don't know exactly like a good name for it. Like gothic mystery, I guess, is like a good name too. Yeah, I guess. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I'll just kind of go over the origins of the genre and then how it kind of leads into today. Leads into (laughs) 1932. Right. (laughs) The gothic horror genre kind of started with this novel called The Castle of Otranto, which was published in 1764 and written by Horace Walpole. Uh, It was called gothic because the author wanted to tie mystery to the novel by making it sound like it was from the Middle Ages. Um, And in this novel, uh, it's this haunted castle that kind of comes to life, spooking these aristocratic visitors. The whole thing with gothic horror is a feeling of terror and horror rather than jump scares. Mm. I I don't know if it's actually really possible to do jump scares in literature, but but it's definitely more of an atmosphere setting type thing where then spooky things happen and you're more likely to believe when the spooky things happen because the atmosphere has been set. Yeah, definitely easier to build an atmosphere in a novel than to try and like do something like, you know, you're reading a paragraph and it just says, and then the monster popped out from behind a corner. 
Yeah. You're like, yeah, all right, sure. He, he walked then. He walked <laughs> around the corner. Right, we've established this. <laughs> Notable examples of the gothic horror genre, anything written by Edgar Allan Poe, practically, mm-hmm. but I thought I'd point to The Fall of the House of Usher since we saw that film adaptation, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, which I think is a really neat example because usually the scare is supposed to be supernatural in order to hook the readers. And with Jane Eyre, it's a case of, is it supernatural? No, it's just a mad woman in the attic. Jane Eyre sort of like straddles that line where it's more of like gothic romance than gothic horror in a way. Yeah. There's sort of a spectrum there. Yeah, like a Venn diagram. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Dracula later on. You'll notice that with these examples that I'm giving, there's a castle somewhere in these novels. Mm -hmm. Gothic horror doesn't necessarily need that, but it's very common for it to have that. Because gothic horror is so focused on setting up this atmosphere, use of kind of stereotypes or archetypes were a little common, just because it would be used as shorthand to set up these atmospheres. Sure. You could see the genre kind of moving into this trend into laughing at the characters in these situations um, and devolving into parodies. Um, And kind of the example that I like to point to is Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey, published in 1818. Mm -hmm. When Gothic, I guess, to call it Gothic horror... Uh, turns into a parody or a comedy, it's to laugh at these clueless people, often aristocratic people, laughing at them in these situations. And I think it's kind of interesting to think about gothic horror straddling the line between horror and comedy, because these people you're either terrified for or you're laughing at. Right, sure. We saw the same turn to comedy with these kind of spooky houses in American plays and then in their film adaptations. Right. So we had Mary Roberts Reinhardt's Circular Staircase novel, published in 1908, adapted into The Bat, first as a play in 1920 and then later as the film in 1926. Mm-hmm. Um, the Monster, uh, first a play in 1922 and then the film in 1925. And then Cat and the Canary, which was a play in 1922, and then a film adaptation in 1927. Yeah, and these all have kind of had, like, been on different points on that spectrum between horror and comedy, I feel. Like, some of them have been more comedic, some of them have been more horrific, but they've all kind of been in that horror-comedy realm. Yeah, and what's interesting is, um, in terms of their film release, it went The Monster, The Bat, The Cat and the Canary, and... They got more focused on horror and spooky than comedy as it mm-hmm. went on. Yeah. Um, and we kind of talk about that in those episodes, too. Yeah, I mean, that's been sort of the overall trend in American horror has been to, you know, when it started, it was really hedging its bets with a lot of comic relief. And then, like our last episode, Jekyll and Hyde, we identified that there really wasn't any comic relief anymore. Yeah, and I think when you have a play that's trying to build up these horror elements, it just takes one audience member to kind of start giggling at the situation Mm. in order for it to turn into a horror comedy. Sure. I mean, you can look at a lot of, a lot of pieces of media through the ages and see the way that it tries or fails to balance between that, the the tension of horror to comedy. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, whether intentionally or unintentionally over the years. Yeah, exactly. And we even see that in, like, the Dracula and Frankenstein plays in later films, and even the Spanish Dracula film adaptation. We really see the the genre's ability to be seriously spooky, and also sometimes seriously spoopy, depending (laughs) on the success of the mood setting, um, how much it's selling itself, but I think also with its own intent. Like, uh, the monster is probably the best example here, where the film's intent was a comedy. You're supposed to laugh at the characters in this spooky situation. Yeah. Whereas the cat and the canary, its intent was, yeah, it had funny characters, but its intent was still to terrify you. Yeah, yeah. Comic relief from the horror in Cat and the Canary versus, like, a comedy movie set in a haunted house in The Monster. Yeah, yeah. So since The Monster Walks is following these narrative structures and archetypes, I'm really curious to see how it fares balancing this tension between comedy and terror. For sure. Because, like, these films, especially The Monster, which was the most comedic out of these horror films, it came out in 1925, and that's, like, 13... 13? That's just under 10 years before this film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it hasn't even been a full decade, but it's still... But we've seen so many more, like, (laughs) dedicated to terrifying the audience type of horror movies come out. So I'm really curious to see, like, where The Monster Walks goes with this. For sure. Yeah, so The Monster Walks was released on February 7th, 1932, from a company called Aster Pictures, which was kind of like a low-level independent distribution company that specialized in either distributing, like, re-releases of films or else, like, cheap, uh, independent fare like The Monster Walks and did this by targeting rural, small-town, or suburban theaters so that they wouldn't be competing directly with uh, the big studios, which all owned their own theater chains uh, at this time. The film's director, Frank Strayer, had been working in Hollywood since the end of World War I. He had been directing feature films since 1925, uh, but The Monster Walks would be his first horror film. He would direct several more horror pictures in this first golden age of the genre, so we'll be seeing him again on the show. But he is best known as the director of 14 films based on the Blondie newspaper comic strip from 1938 to 1943. Okay. Yeah. It was this uh, whole series. I think they made like 28 of them or so, but Strayer directed like the first 14 of them. The film's cast was largely made up of, I guess we'll call them working actors. What do you mean by that? Uh, Like, you know, not movie stars, just actors who are out there getting work, regularly working. A few like silent film era actors who had made the transition to sound, but maybe weren't as big stars anymore. Probably the biggest name in the cast would be Misha R., who was a Russian actor who immigrated to the U.S. following the Russian Civil War. R. mostly was playing villains at this stage of his career, but his comedic performance in 1936's My Man Godfrey would net him an Oscar nomination and then lead to a renewed career in the late 30s and through the 40s as a kind of zany comedian. 
uh, and he would become like very popular. But he's not at that stage yet. He's still just being typecast because he's a foreigner as villains. Mm-hmm. Probably the most like problematic aspect I'm gonna bet of this film when we watch it is going to be a member of the cast named Willie Best. I don't know, you know, exactly what he's going to be like in this film, but Best was an African-American comedian who specialized in a kind of minstrel show style caricature, Mm. uh, similar to the contemporary popular performer Lincoln Perry, whose character stage persona of Steppen Fetchit became synonymous with stereotypes of African-Americans as lazy and subservient. Okay. Uh, have you ever heard of Step and Fetch It before? No. He's definitely like the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He's sort of the... Archetype? Yeah, he's sort of the archetypal minstrel show character in, in a lot of ways. You know, not a blackface character. These were African-American performers, but doing those kind of caricatures okay. uh, in a kind of vaudeville setting. And of course, the name Step and Fetch It is a, like a, a pun joke name, right? Yeah. Best's stage persona was the similarly named Sleep and Eat, uh, a name he was credited under for his first six films, including The Monster Walks. Best originally worked in Hollywood as a chauffeur before becoming a vaudeville performer and often played characters who worked that kind of job or similar service-oriented style jobs. During the height of his career, he was very well loved and praised by luminaries such as Bob Hope and Hal Roach, who considered him one of the best comedians in Hollywood, and he was credited under his real name of Willie Best from 1935 onwards. While he almost always played very small, service-oriented style bit roles, he was consistently credited, and his characters were always named, which was unusual for bit parts, even those played by white actors. The 1950s and the civil rights movement saw Best become largely reviled and later pitied for the stereotyped roles that he played, and a drug arrest in the early 1950s would largely end his film career, in addition to the culture turning away from the type of comedy that he performed. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I don't know the exact nature of his role in the film, uh, or the exact nature of the comedy that's going to be on the screen, but it's likely to be pretty offensive by a 2017 standard. Okay. So The Monster Walks, uh, as an independent film of the 1930s, is in public domain because its copyright has lapsed. (laughs) Uh, It's available on DVD from kind of the typical suspects in crappy public domain DVD releases like Alpha (laughs) Video and Rowan Group and Synergy. Uh, There doesn't seem to be any, like, restored good releases of this film. Most of the DVD releases seem to have been taken from like various older VHS releases uh, and are in pretty rough shape. It is up on YouTube as well, probably ripped from one of these sources. There's a few different copies. I tried to find the best one I could, but even then it's like not great in terms of the condition and the quality, Mm -hmm. but it is up on our Scream Scene YouTube playlist. If you'd like to see that playlist, you can check out our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. Before we watch the film, I have a question for you, Ben. Mm -hmm. Given that this film features a pretty prominent comedian for the time, Mm -hmm. that kind of bodes more for this film 
falling on the comedic side. Right. So why, what evidence do you have that this is a horror movie? Um, Besides the title, I guess. I guess, like, because I don't really know a lot about this movie and I'd never seen it, I'm mostly going off the way this film was marketed. Uh, the mm-hmm. posters and other publicity material all kind of focus on, like, this monster and, like, people's faces in terror and, and a lot of screams and shocks and stuff. So I think it was marketing itself as another horror movie, you know, in the vein of these movies that had recently become very popular. And it was trying to jump on that bandwagon. Okay. Cool. Well, uh, we're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and then when we come back, we will have watched the film. All right. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Monster Walks from 1932. So, (laughs) I have two questions. Yeah. Was there a monster in this movie? The monster was humanity. (laughs) Uh, Second question. Did the monster walk? I mean, technically. Also technically no, though. If, like, the responsible party for the entire mystery story was the paraplegic. But the, the... person who was doing the actual deeds walked. That's true. It's a bad movie. It is a bad movie. Do you want to give the bad movie's plot? Sure. Okay. So, um, very similar setup to The Cat and the Canary. Uh, this old man, Dr. Earlton, has died. And he has a big old house filled with secret passages because it used to be owned by smugglers, I guess. And he owns a chimpanzee named Yogi, who he keeps in a cage, or kept, he's still in the cage. He keeps him in a cage in the basement because Dr. Olton was experimenting on chimpanzees because he was interested in uh, Darwinian theory. Side note, why is the chimpanzee named Yogi? That's a name for a bear. I mean, Yogi Bear wasn't a thing in 1932, so... I, it's, it's something I can't get over. Okay. Let me have this one thing to be upset about out of this entire movie. So, uh, there's a bunch of people in the house for the reading of the will. There's Mr. Wilkes, uh, Dr. Earlton's lawyer. There's Robert, Dr. Earlton's brother, who is confined to a wheelchair. There is Ruth, Dr. Earlton's daughter, who grew up in this house and who was always frightened of Yogi. Uh, There's her fiancé, Dr. Ted Clayton. Uh, And then there's Mrs. Krug, who is the house's caretaker, uh, and she's played by Martha Maddox, who's basically just playing the exact same role that she played in Cat in the Canary. And then there's her son, Hans Krug. Hans. Hans Krug, who's played by Misha Auer, and who kind of looks like if Conrad Veidt, Bela Lugosi, and Boris Karloff were kind of, like, put into a blender and then played by, like, the young son of Christopher Walken and Tom Hiddleston... Like, he's just got wild and crazy black hair, and he's tall and thin and gaunt and, you know, villainous looking. And so they're all there to hear the reading of the will. And there's also Exodus, who is Dr. Clayton's chauffeur, who drove him and Ruth up here. And he's the role played by Willie Best. 
So they read the will, and uh, Ruth is the sole beneficiary of everything, uh, with a little bit of money set aside to basically pay Mrs. Krug's wage until she dies, and to pay for Robert to be well looked after in like a home or something. Uh, and there's a provision that if Ruth dies, then everything goes to Robert. There's also a lot of dialogue between Mrs. Krug and her son about how, like, they deserved more and stuff. Well, okay, that's Hans. Listener, it... Everyone calls him Hans. It's really frustrating. Like, say Hans. Sure. Like, it's set up in the movie that they're German. Call him Hans. Right. That's that's what drove him to commit these murders, Oh, spoilers. Well, ugh. So... Anyways, it's, it's... Hans, who is being like, we deserved more, and his mom being like, chill out, dude. Yes, like, that's a... Yeah. Calm down. Yeah, that's a good point to make. So, um, it's a dark and stormy night, of course, so everyone decides to stay the night in the mansion, uh, and they all go to their respective rooms for the night, and everything I just said was the first half of the movie. The first 30 minutes of the 60-minute film. Yeah. Uh, was just everyone showing up, learning about the will, and then going to the rooms. Right before the halfway point, though, uh, Dr. Clayton and the lawyer Wilkes have a, um, expository conversation in front of the fire that explains people's ill wills or feelings towards each other, or why Ruth might be in danger. Right. It's, (laughs) It's like, we get all of this exposition in the first half hour, and then there's a scene at the first half hour mark that sums up all the exposition we've already gotten. Yeah. And nothing's happened. Uh, so Ruth goes to her room to go to sleep. She's in a separate room from Dr. Clayton because it's 1932 and they're not married yet. And a big hairy primate looking arm comes out of a secret little notch behind her bed to try and strangle her because (laughs) Yeah, Someone these... saw the cat in the canary. Yeah, definitely. And it freaks her out, and she screams, and everyone's like, oh, Ruth, what's wrong? And she tells them, and they can't find any evidence of anyone having gotten into her room, and Yogi, the chimpanzee, is still clearly, like, securely locked up. So they're like, oh, you must have had a bad dream. Go back to bed. But uh, Ted can't seem to believe that that's what happened, so he appoints himself amateur detective And starts going around questioning everybody and looking for clues and just can't seem to solve the world's most obvious mystery, uh, which is, you know, that, like, if the lawyer was here with me and Ruth was the intended victim and Robert can't walk and Mrs. Krug is in the room with Ruth and Exodus is in the car, then who could have done it? Gosh, maybe it's the one person who didn't have an alibi and is also super creepy looking and hates (laughs) you all. Ruth can't quite get back to sleep, so um, Mrs. Krug says she'll stay the night with Ruth, and Mrs. Krug gets into the bed while Ruth stays up to read, and there's a second attempt on Ruth's life by the big hairy arm, and it kills Mrs. Krug because she was lying in bed instead of Ruth. Uh, and everyone's like, oh, there's been a murder. Who could it have been? And they kind of just go through all the suspects and how no one could have done it again and kind of walk through all the same information again, and it's still really obviously Hans. Yep. And then Hans finds his mother dead and realizes that he's accidentally killed her, because it's, like, obviously Hans in an ape suit who's been doing all this stuff. Definitely a full suit. Yeah, like an arm. 
A just glove? Just an arma glove. An ape glove? Yeah, an ape opera glove. And then Hans goes to Robert's room and is like, hey, I accidentally killed my mom for you, you idiot. Like, what the fuck? And that's when we kind of find out that Robert's actually the mastermind because if Ruth dies, then Robert gets all the money, and then he would have given the money to Mrs. Krug and Hans because, twist, Hans is actually Robert's son with Mrs. Krug, which is why Hans has been figuring that he deserved to get more out of this deal. So Hans is pissed off at Robert for getting him into this situation. He kills Robert. Meanwhile, Ted's got everyone except Hans in the, like, living room. And he's like, gosh, if it wasn't me and it wasn't you and if it wasn't anyone in this room, who could it have been? Again, just forgetting that Hans exists. And so Ted comes to the conclusion that it must have been the ape. So they check the ape for, like, the fourth time. And, yep, that ape's still securely locked up. No problem there. Hans come in, comes in and is like, hey, everybody, Robert's dead. No, 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 something's wrong with Robert. Right. So Ted, go check him out right. and leave Ruth here with me. Yes. So they do that. He uses that opportunity to take Ruth to the basement and tie her up and then, like, whip the ape up into a frenzy. I suspect the plan was to, like, get the ape all mad and then open the cage. Yeah, because it's set up that the ape hates Ruth a lot, so he'll just, like, kill her on sight or some shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and instead what happens is he whips the ape up into a fury, and the ape just turns on him and kills him. And then everyone comes downstairs and sees what's happened, and they're like, oh my god, like, it was hands the whole time. Who could have thought? And then the movie ends. Yeah. It was an hour long. Yeah, that's an hour we will never get back in our lives, Ben. Yeah, but I spent it with you, so... Aww. It's still pretty good. <laughs> I maybe maybe I was giving this movie too much credit, but like like it was very clear that Hans was the suspicious one. But I was like, well, the movie's called The Monster Walks. So what if it's Robert and he's only playing at being a paraplegic? Right. And so I was thinking that like because we get like the first sign of the monster, quote unquote, opera glove monster is closing the door that leads out of Robert's room. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was going to be something clever or something like that. And it, it wasn't. Like, it had a neat twist, but, like, there wasn't anything else to this movie. It, it, it was so obvious, the whole movie, that Hans was the villain, because he, like, looks and acts and talks and walks like a villain. So when it turned out that, yes, he was the villain the whole time... And especially because the lead character, Ted, is, like, so convinced that, like, it, it must be the ape. Like, I find myself wondering, like, did the filmmakers think they were clever? Like, did the people <laughs> making this movie think that audiences would go, like, oh, yeah, it's definitely the ape because we saw the hand, and then be shocked that it was hands? Like, did anyone think that this was not super obvious? Like, it's like reading a mystery that's being written by someone who thinks they're way cleverer than they are? I don't think the filmmakers are thinking that they're clever. Maybe they are. But the film itself gives us the answer to the mystery. Yeah, the clear... Before the characters themselves have figured it out. Yeah, they don't... Exactly. Like, there's no shock when the characters figure it out, because the movie's just straight up told us by that point. Not just by how obvious everything is being, but because we see scenes from Hans point of view. Yeah. It, this movie is the answer to the hypothetical question, what if the most boring, unimaginative people alive remade The Cat and the Canary? 
To be fair, there is one moment that was creatively inspired. Mm -hmm. As they're searching the house or something, we see Dr. Clayton and lawyer Wilkes. They approach Hans's room. Right. And we see him playing a violin with the shadow falling on the window to his room that has like a shade pulled down. Like, they're knocking, and he's not... His shadow isn't reacting, and then suddenly the light gets turned off. We don't hear the music anymore, and then Hans opens the door. Mm -hmm. And I was like, why would they have this really neat thing about Hans if Hans is going to be the bad guy? Ah, yes, it will come back in the end, which it does, because Dr. Clayton goes to check up on Hans when they can't find... Ruth, and uh, they hear the violin, and they see the shadow, they open the door, and it's a record player with light casting a, a shadow from this paper cutout. Yeah, like, it's because, like, Hans's like, main alibi was that... He plays the violin late into the night? He, right, so, like, he couldn't have done all the things. Which, it, I mean, like, that's, like, that's a neat idea. Like, you hear the music, so you think you know that he's there. Yeah, I mean, it's just that, like... Dr. Ted Clayton is an idiot. So bad. And, and like, he himself is a terrible actor. Yes, it's a bland, boring actor playing an idiot character who is our protagonist. And, and like, the film doesn't seem to be trying to portray him as an idiot. Like, no one's like, ah, oh, you fool. Like, he's not comedic or anything. So that's what makes me feel like the filmmakers thought that they had written a clever mystery. But it's really like watching someone try to solve a mystery who has no idea how to solve a mystery. <laughs> like, he just questions everyone in the house a million times about stuff, except for, like, the one person he should be questioning. There's so many scenes in this movie that are just these circuitous, going-around-in-circles scenes. Like, this movie could have been a half hour long for how eventless it is. Right? Like, there, yeah. like three things happen, right? Everyone shows up at the house, you know, Ruth gets frightened, Mrs. Krug dies, and then Ruth gets captured at the end. And everything in between that is just people standing around in rooms. You see people walking to and from rooms and wishing each other good night and tucking each other in and exchanging, like, pleasantries. Oh, there is this amazing part where, like, they've just read the will and, um... <laughs> Robert is talking about how, oh, my brother was always so generous and has always tried to look after me. And then the scene just cuts middle of the sentence to, like, see outside the hall where, like, Hans and Wilkes are bumping into each other or something like that. Right. But just the way that it just, like, like mid-word cuts off Robert. It's like, yeah, the editor didn't give a fuck about this movie either. Yeah. This movie is a masterclass in filler scenes and filler dialogue. Ugh. Like, if you've ever wanted to know how to fill out time and, and just play for time, like, it's by having just people have conversations where they remind each other who they are and how they're related and why they're here over and over and over again. Ruth exclaiming, take me away! Oh, yeah. This, Take me away. This film is super infantilizing oh, to yeah. Ruth. Like, she has no agency whatsoever. And because she's in, like, her old family home with, like, her old caretaker and her uncle, like, everyone treats her like she's still this small girl. And there's all kinds of dialogue. And she keeps, yeah, she keeps insisting to her fiancé, like, okay, if someone's trying to kill me, let's leave. 
and they don't. And there's no reason why they can't. They have a car with their own chauffeur. Like, his name <laughs> is Exodus. Like, let's go. Yeah, like, let's... Exodus right out of here. Yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> they but no, they just stick around. It's yeah, it's very infantilizing to her. Yeah, it's I mean, I feel like your point about filler is spot on because all of the dialogue, even when it's like trying to give exposition, it all feels like filler. And maybe that's why they don't actually leave because it's just the writer was like, "Oh, I need words that indicate that Ruth is scared. Ah, take me away, said in, like, a high-pitched voice. Yeah. But, like, that's not going to have anything to do with the plot. Like, let's just have her say it so we get across that she's scared or something. Yeah, I mean, this is a movie where we watch a guy, like, leave his frightened fiancé, go back into his bedroom, pull, like, a sleeping pill out of his doctor's bag, like, put it in a glass of water that he's poured, and, like, stir it around and, like, walk it back to her. And it's like, oh, it's so torturous. I mean, I think, like, again, this is another case of maybe I thought the movie was more clever than it actually was, but we see Mrs. Krug drink that glass of water, or drink a glass of water. Seems to only be one in the room, so I think it was the one that was drugged, but she drinks that before she goes to sleep, and maybe that's why she didn't make sounds when she was strangled. Yeah. But, like, there's nothing that's, like, making that clear. Like, if I have to, like, make a possible, like, leap to put two and two together... Your movie should be more clear. Yeah, it's because there's no filmmaking craft going on here, right? Yeah, like, if they wanted to make that clear, have a, a, a close-up on the glass or something. Yeah, exactly. So we knew it was significant. Like, this whole movie is shot... Like a stage play. Like a stage play, where everything's from... You know, we get a full head-to-toe view of everyone. We can always see the floor and, like, the, all three walls. The only time that it's not that is uh, when the hand first appears over Ruth's head... Right. We get this moving shot of the, the camera coming in and, like, focusing on her head and the hand coming over her. That's the only time. And, I mean, having seen so many other, like, amazing films, especially with amazing moving camera shots, that's so no. amateur. Yeah. Like, they, they clearly had some idea of what they needed to have for it to be a scary movie because they've got this thunderstorm that just goes on for the whole night, and, you know, there's some scenes that take place in semi-darkness. You just get the sense that nobody making this film was very creative or imaginative. Or interested in the story enough to put that effort in. Right, they're just sort of ticking off boxes. Everyone here is just working. Yeah. Right? It's like they're just doing their jobs in a competent, here's here's how the sausage gets made kind of way, right? In a very factory assembly line way. There are certainly some actors in this movie who are acting, but Ted Clayton certainly <laughs> is not. Well, when I say competent, like, I mean, like, you know, they're saying their lines and they're hitting their marks and they've got lights on the actor. Like, it's it's a movie. <laughs> like, you know, like, like okay, nobody, okay. Nobody, nobody making this movie is really terrible. Nobody's really fucking up, right? This isn't Manos, the Hands of Fate, or Ed Wood (laughs) style ineptitude. Everyone here is just working. It's just a, like, you get the feeling that this was just a job for these people, right? Sure. I'm not sure if it's a good or bad thing that the ape was just a misdirect. 
Because this movie's like, even its opening credits are like this big gorilla holding like an, a fainted woman in his arms. That's the art that's behind the opening credits. And it's just a chimpanzee. Yeah, a very upset chimpanzee who keeps freaking out because he's in the world's tiniest cage. Yeah. But, like, would it have made the movie any better if the ape actually had been a part of it? Or are you glad that the ape wasn't actually a part of it? The ape comes in at the end when it's, like, uh, I think the film was going for irony or something. Right. Where, you know, the ape grabs the whip and pulls Hans in and then strangles Hans. Yes. For coming too close to the, the cage. I am satisfied by the use of the chimpanzee in the monster walks. Right. That is the only thing I am satisfied by. Right. It was nice to see Yogi get to kill Hans. When you say, like, you think the film was going for irony, there's a lot of moments where it's like, you have to guess at maybe what the film was going for. Yeah. They keep bringing up that, like, Dr. Erlton was a scientist who did experiments on the apes, but, like, they never go into any detail, and I feel like it's there as a detail to make you think maybe, like, oh, some experiment was done to make this ape cleverer than the average ape, but they never go into anything that's specific, and it's just a total red herring. And then the movie ends on this line that's like, oh, yeah, he was looking into, like, evolutionary theory, and it's like, okay, was there something thematic they were trying to get across about, like, man is not so far from animal? Maybe? But again, it's like a, it's like a leap. You have to make that leap to s- decide that that's a theme the movie wanted to express. Maybe if I squint real hard, uh, <laughs> it's saying something about, like, inheritance and family lineage or something, because Hans is upset about, like, never being acknowledged as Robert's son, uh, not getting anything in- from the inheritance of Ruth's dad. Uh, like, maybe, maybe there's something there. But again, if it's kind of like... I feel like that's giving the the film too much credit. Yeah, it's like you said. Like, if if you have to squint to see it, like, you screwed up. Yeah. Right? The only other thing to really talk about in this movie is Willie Best, or Sleep and Eat, as he's credited. He he wasn't doing humor that I was <laughs> super worried about, but the joke was consistently like, oh, he's black. He wasn't as offensive as I think we were afraid he was going to be. Yeah. What the movie just kind of does with him is every few minutes it just cuts back to him, and he gets to have a line that just sort of comments on the film that's basically always along the line of like, I'm super scared and I wish I wasn't here and all these people are crazy for staying in this house. And it's it's just kind of cutting back to this character who gets to express like, gee, what a frightening predicament we're all in. And he gets to overreact to everything. Yeah, it's it's not super offensive, but it's also like not funny either. Like there isn't really much humor there so the only you know when you say that the joke is he's black like I think that's true because I can't think of a reason why an audience in 1932 would laugh at his sequences other than just like ha 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 look at the black man right like yeah that's kind of the only because his jokes are so non-existent it's like that line's only funny because he's saying it kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah, that's totally what I meant. Whether it's in the way he's saying the things. Right, just like the joke being his speech patterns. Yeah, or if it's like the fact that he is like commenting on 
the white people being dumb enough to stay in this house. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, I, I was, a pre- like, especially with, like, his stage name being Sleep and Eat, I was concerned that there were going to be jokes about, like, all he wants to do is sleep and all he wants to do is eat. Yeah, like, the, uh, the, but the joke very would be much, that he's lazy. Yeah, but the joke was, like, no, he has common sense to, like, not go into this house, but he's, look at him say it weird. Yeah, he's the shaggy of the story, right? He's the, like, spooked-out coward who the camera cuts to for a gag. Zoinks. Yeah. He does get one good joke, uh, which is when Mr. Wilkes asks him if he has a revolver in the car, and he just pulls out a gun and says that, no, he's got a revolver right here. (laughs) That that was probably, like, the one joke that I laughed at in this movie. Yeah. Uh, Do we want to move on to ranking? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I don't think there's anything else to say about this film. No. So where I'm kind of looking is the range below the Bat Whispers and above the Unknown. So that's around, like, 17 to 22. Okay. My ceiling was The Monster uh, at number 26, which is to say I felt The Monster was better than The Monster Walks. And my floor uh, was Wolf Blood, number 30. I think this was better than Wolf Blood. Okay. So that's sort of where I'm looking. My rationale for this was I felt that, like, like the golem was better than this. I didn't feel comfortable putting this above the golem. Because, like, our whole thing with the golem was, like, the golem wasn't really a horror movie. But the golem's, like, trying. There's so much effort put into that film. And there's no effort at all put into this. And then I felt like it went above Wolf Blood for the same reason. Which is that this movie's trying in a way that Wolf Blood was not. Also, while both movies have offensive, racist stereotypes, this movie, it's an actual African-American performer, and in Wolf Blood, there was kind of some, I guess you'd call it, like, red face going on. There was, um, the actor... Oh, yeah, who was Métis. Yeah, who was just, they gave him just, like, some dirty-looking makeup to play a Métis character. Yeah, I think, I think you make some good points. The reason why I have it higher than yours, I think, is because I was pleased that it wasn't a comedy. Sure. This is more horror than comedy. Mm. I I don't know whether you could say that there's horror in this because it's so bland and a little boring. But you can tell that that's what they're going for. Yeah, so that's why I was kind of thinking around the unknown. The unknown is the one where it has Alonzo the Armless. Yeah. It has Lon Chaney senior in a movie that's like like a horror character in a romance type thing Mm -hmm. but i i definitely see what you're saying if if we're looking at your range i would put it below the monster and the reason for that is we had talked about lon cheney in the monster doing a job yes you know he's just he's there to get his paycheck and go home at the end of the day but he's putting in effort yes he, he's doing the scary faces. Um, his makeup's pretty average, but it's not like he, it's no makeup. Like, mm-hmm. So if we're saying that this is just, you know, working actors, you know, people making a movie, going home, a little uninspired, I th- feel like the monster walks should go below the monster. Yeah, and I think that hits the nail on the head of kind of why I was putting it there to begin with, because, you know, if we look at your floor where the unknown is, like, the Unknown, uh, the 1912 Jekyll and Hyde, Avenging Conscience, The Golem, The Monster, all of those are movies where 
I feel like the people making them were trying more than the people making this movie, right? I can't, yeah. I can't say, like, you know, that D.W. Griffith or uh, Paul Wigner were doing a worse job making movies than Frank Strayer was here. It makes so much sense that Strayer went on to, like, direct movies based on Blondie because the directing style of this movie feels so much like a three-camera television sitcom, in, like, how it's shot and set up. Like, this feels like a TV show 20 years before that's a thing. Okay, so if we're saying Blow the Monster, do we think this is better than The King Bag at Jekyll and Hyde from 1913? That's really tough. That movie, I mean, again, that movie we had to squint to see its themes about alcoholism. Yeah. The central question might just be, like, is Misha Auer as Hans creepier than King Baggett is Hyde might be like the most direct one-to-one way to compare them. Ooh, I'd put The Monster Walks above then because I felt like he, like, it felt like he was trying to do a Cesare Orlock's Hand type deal, mainly just because he's in, like, full black uh, and doing, like, really weird things with his hands because his name is Hands. Yes. Uh, <laughs> he strangles all his victims. I preferred that over King Baggett's jumping at people. Yeah, I think Misha Auer, like, his vocal performance reminded me of Bela, too. Like, I think that, yeah, I think Misha Auer, like, clearly was told, like, you're going to be the villain in a horror movie, and was like, okay, what does that look like? And is trying, like, his best to evoke that, even if it's not really, like, his wheelhouse. Uh, So, yeah, I'm fine with putting it there, then. Okay. All right, so, entering the list at number 27... Right below the monster goes the monster walks. Not not a sequel. Not related. <laughs> From 1932, directed by Frank Strayer. If you'd like to see this list, you can check our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. And you can also find our ask box where you can submit appeals. Feel free to also email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday and is available through iTunes, SoundCloud, and any podcatchers that are connected to those two services. If you enjoy Scream Scene, uh, please leave us a comment on SoundCloud or a review and a rating on iTunes. It helps others notice the show. Uh, We'd also just like to hear from you in general. Uh, Any feedback is good feedback. Yeah, you can follow us on Twitter, at underscore Scream Scene. Uh, We'd love to talk about how terrible this movie was. (laughs) It's not the most terrible. It's mediocre. Uh, It is seven away from the bottom of the list currently. (laughs) What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, next week I think is going to be a film that's going to give us a little bit more to chew on. Okay. It's Todd Browning's 1932 film Freaks. Ooh, excellent. Freaks is really good. Yeah, it's, it's... It still freaks me out. It's quite a film. I see you pointing at me with, like, a goofy grin. Freaks you out? It was meant to be a pun thing? Yeah. Gotcha. You okay. Didn't, you didn't even laugh. You I, didn't go, hey. Like, come on, dude. I guess I'm just immune to your <laughs> your charms now. Yeah, Freaks is really interesting and a film with quite a lot going on in it, so I suspect our next episode will be uh, a little more in-depth. Well, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. 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 Thank you.